Welcome to Rise, Healing from Childhood Sexual Abuse Podcast. I am your host, Jessica Heil, registered psychologist and DBT certified clinician. I am also a childhood sexual abuse survivor. In this podcast, I will offer information about childhood sexual abuse in order to provide you with knowledge on this difficult topic, as well as provide you with strategies and tips that you can access now in order to begin moving from surviving to thriving. Welcome back. I am so excited to record this episode today. Today is going to be about EMDR, which is probably my favorite therapy to be able to do with people. It's a therapy that is an evidence-based treatment for PTSD and treating symptoms that are related to any type of past adverse experience. And the reason why I like it so much is because so much positive change can happen for a person in such a short period of time. It's really common for me to hear people say that the change has been profound, that it's been life-changing. So it just gets me all sorts of fired up because just, yeah, so much positive can happen from this type of therapy. So what is EMDR? It stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. That's quite the mouthful. So generally, you're going to hear people just refer to it as EMDR. It was developed by Francine Shapiro, who is a therapist who had discovered that using something called bilateral stimulation, which I'll talk about here in a bit, uh, using bilateral stimulation when remembering adverse events helps the brain to process the event and reduces distress. So kind of a a cool discovery to come about. What she noticed specifically is that when she was, I think she said she was walking, I can't remember where she was walking, in a forest or something, and she was having some rumination about a difficult thing that she was going through. And she noticed that as she was thinking about this distressing event and walking, the rhythm of the walking seemed to help alleviate the distress. And she went, huh, isn't that interesting? Of course, her psychologist brain or researcher brain went, I wonder if I'm able to apply this to a therapy. And she then went on to develop EMDR. EMDR involves using bilateral stimulation, which means having some sort of symmetrical stimulation on both sides of the body. So kind of like this back and forth motion while processing the events of things that have happened in the past that caused distress. So she adds this bilateral movement to this remembering and talking about and feeling into the emotions of the distressing event. And there's a certain way of of doing that that is strategic uh, and based on science that helps people be able to process the adverse experiences that they've gone through. I'm going to talk more about that process as we get going, but let me just give you a little bit more information about just EMDR generally. And and then I'll move to the more specific things here in a little bit. EMDR, so as mentioned, it is an evidence-based practice for PTSD. Evidence-based means there's just been lots of research that has verified that the therapy does indeed work for the population that it was supposed to work for based on research. So we know that it works to treat PTSD. It's also a really great choice for treating any memories that are related to childhood sexual abuse because that so certainly we can get ptsd from childhood sexual abuse but sometimes what ends up happening is that for something like childhood sexual abuse it's not like there's a single episode of ptsd if you listened to my episode from last from last episode i guess 
on prolonged exposure. I talked about how prolonged exposure does really well with treating single episode PTSD. But as most of us know, things like childhood sexual abuse happens oftentimes more pervasively. It's frequently not just a one-time occurrence. It happens over a span of time, kind of over and over and over again. And so that makes things like prolonged exposure just a little bit more tricky to use with something like a pervasive type of abuse. EMDR is a wonderful choice for treating those types of symptoms related to abuse like that because it really does well with treating pervasive memories rather than just single episode. So I really prefer using EMDR to treat things like pervasive abuse because of that. It's going to get at the theme of an event a lot more than it's going to get at these kind of single episodes of different traumas that might have occurred. Both can work, so I don't want to say that one is necessarily better than the other, but just in my experience, I found that EMDR works very, very well for pervasive abuse. What it does is that you, or how it works, I guess, is that you choose a memory to anchor the trauma work to, or the adverse experience work to, but then in the work, it has the opportunity to expand to treating the whole trauma network. And this is, we have a, a theory that helps to explain how this works and why it's effective. In EMDR, there's something called the adaptive information processing theory. And this is the idea that the brain has an information processing system that assimilates new experiences into already existing memory networks. So let me give you an example of that. So if we see a new type of dog that we've never seen before, we're able to say to ourselves, pretty sure that's a dog. Why? Because it has four legs, it has a tail that wags, and it has a tongue that hangs out. And so our brain goes, oh, I've seen this type of animal before. I know that animals with four legs and a tail that wags and a tongue that hangs out must be a dog. Therefore, this must be a dog, even though I've never seen this exact type of dog. So that's the example of assimilation, where our brain is able to look at something we've experienced and make a, an educated guess at what this new experience might be. And when it does that, it clusters those two experiences together. So the old experience and the new puts it into one memory network where all of that connects. And now we have this memory network of, say in this example, what is a dog? Problems, however, can arise when an experience gets inadequately processed. For example, distressing events generally become stored in what we consider to be state-specific form. It means that these incidents get frozen in time in their own neural network. So they kind of get segregated off from the rest of the brain. They don't get assimilated properly. And these new trauma networks become unable to connect with other memory networks that may hold more adaptive information. So let's say that something like abuse occurs or trauma occurs. The brain is going to segregate that and keep it in its own little cluster of uh, trauma uh, like neurons and synapses and they kind of just trigger over and over and over again onto each other and it's like this really big kind of i imagine it is almost like this dark cloud in our brain and that's all it can do is kind of sense its own dark cloud it's not able to remember oh there were times where maybe um you know people were kind to me or i was able to trust other people or I was around a person who was an authority figure and they didn't take advantage of me. These would all be more kind of uh, productive and uh, adaptive types of thoughts and memories that we might have. 
And a trauma network is just unable to bind to those more adaptive types of thinking. And therefore, we just get re-triggered with the trauma over and over and over again. That's what happens when we have adverse experiences. So in EMDR, how it works is that the processing that occurs in the therapy and other trauma therapies allows for the trauma networks in our brain to begin connecting to more adaptive networks in the brain. And that leads to healing. So that will help us because then we start to be able to have these more positive um, elements of our, our mind start to help us with reprocessing the events. So before trauma treatment, each time that something reminds us of the distressing event, that neural network, that trauma network gets triggered over and over again in its original form, which means that we experience the same emotions, the same thoughts, the same behaviors, the same beliefs, et cetera, that were originally stored in that network. That just happens over and over and over again. But when we start to go through therapy, we're able to access different thoughts, different emotions, different behaviors, different beliefs than the ones that are completely just enclosed in the trauma. So it's really neat how it works. I think it's, it's pretty cool. The brain is an amazing organ that's capable of so much change. It just needs a little bit of help sometimes to get there. The trauma network can eventually connect, say, with a network on perhaps resiliency that the survivor experienced in other parts of their lives. And the survivor may then realize how resilient they are because of, um, or given that the trauma has occurred. Um, processing can lead to adaptive shifts in all components of memory as well. So for example, symptoms can change, your sense of time and age can change. Because traumas get frozen in the brain in a state-specific form, sometimes the brain will feel like it's still the age that it was at the time of the trauma. And with processing and healing, the brain starts to realize, oh, I'm no longer, say, six years old and incapable of protecting myself. I am now a whatever, you know, you might be a 30 some odd year old person, 40 some odd, 20 some odd, etc., where I have a lot more power and control than I used to. So lots of good things that can come from therapy. I had mentioned at the start of this episode, the something called bilateral stimulation. What that is, so again, it's this back and forth symmetrical movement that happens on the body, somewhere on the body. Um, and this can look like a bunch of different things. Francine Shapiro had discovered bilateral stimulation for the use of therapy through walking, because that is that repetitive motion back and forth, back and forth as you're stepping from one foot to the other. But there's other ways that this can look in therapy beyond just walking. And in fact, oftentimes we wouldn't use walking as the form of bilateral stimulation in, um, in therapy. The way that Francine Shapiro first started EMDR, she actually used eye movement, hence the name of the therapy, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. So she would have her clients follow her fingers and she would move her fingers back and forth, back and forth, and just have them just watch her hands as they processed the, uh, the adverse experiences that they had gone through. Since the origins of EMDR, bilateral stimulation has expanded to using other types of methods as well. It's really common now for therapists to have buzzers where a person would hold um, a, a piece of plastic that buzzes uh, in each hand. It's just a subtle uh, vibration and it would just vibrate back and forth, back and forth. And that's, I like that version of bilateral stimulation because then the client really doesn't have to think about it. Whereas with the eye movement, I find sometimes it can take a lot of concentration to following those, um, 
the the fingers of the the therapist who's moving it back and forth. So the buzzers are nice. Other clinicians will use tapping. So tapping on the client's knees back and forth, back and forth, or they might get the client to tap themselves. So there's lots of different options for bilateral stimulation. Um, In my experience, they all work quite well. I think it's more just based on person preference to decide which one is going to feel the best for each individual person. What we know about bilateral stimulation and why we think it works is two reasons. So first off is that when we're using bilateral stimulation, it helps a person keep one foot in the present moment while having one foot in the past. And that helps to reduce the possibility of dissociation or depersonalization, derealization, which is when we start to feel like we're no longer like part of our body or part of reality, or we start to lose track of time. That is really common with people who've gone through past adverse experiences, especially abuse. So it just keeps you more grounded by having this bilateral stimulation happening at the same time as processing the trauma. And the other thing, and this is so cool, There's some theories that the reason why bilateral stimulation might work is it sort of replicates what happens during REM sleep. REM sleep is the dream phase of sleep. And if you ever watch a person when they're sleeping who's in REM, you see their eyes darting back and forth. And the truth of it is that science doesn't really know 100% for sure exactly what happens during REM sleep that is so restorative, but we do know that REM sleep is very, very vital for adequate brain functioning. And that when people aren't getting REM sleep, they often find themselves feeling really emotionally vulnerable the next day. They don't have as good of memory. There's lots of things that can happen when we're not getting adequate REM sleep. So the thought is that that eye movement might have something to do with us being able to process all the different sensory that we went through throughout the day. And that it helps to start to sort that sensory processing into different parts of the brain and just makes kind of a more organized brain for when we wake up. EMDR is a phased type of treatment, meaning that it's broken into several different phases. The first phase is about history gathering and providing somebody with an orientation to EMDR so they know what they're going to be getting into. Generally, this is one to two sessions. After that, EMDR proceeds into ensuring that somebody is ready for the work and just the preparation that is needed to make sure the work is going to be successful. This includes giving the person different strategies and skills to regulate emotions and tolerate distress and ensuring that there is nothing that would uh, prohibit the person from entering into the treatment Uh, So, for example, making sure that things like dissociation is not severe. We would not want to put somebody into a trauma treatment if they're really struggling with dissociation because it can make them feel worse, not better. Uh, So there's just a lot of work that needs to be done around dissociation first if somebody is considering going into EMDR. It's not that EMDR is impossible with dissociation. It just means that more skill building is, is going to be needed. After that, the next phase is to begin to assess the memory that the person decides that they want to start working with uh, by choosing different beliefs that they have about themselves because this memory had occurred. What would they rather think about themselves if the distress around this memory is able to be treated? Uh, Getting a sense of what are the emotions and body sensations that a person feels when they think about the memory. And then after that, the actual 
EMDR work, including the bilateral stimulation begins. And initially, the therapist and their client are working on reducing the distress towards the memory that they've chosen, and also decreasing any of the negative beliefs the person might hold about themselves because the memory happened. So that first phase is really, or that, well, the, the first phase of actually doing the, uh, the formal work of EMDR is to work on desensitization towards the distress and those negative beliefs. After the distress is down and those negative beliefs do not come as, as easily to the person, they, don't, they no longer believe the cognitions that they're telling themselves, then it will flip to starting to install more positive beliefs. So that's kind of a cool thing. We go from believing these really negative things about ourselves to then starting to work on what would we like to believe about ourselves instead. So for example, a lot of people might hold on to a belief such as like I'm not enough is a common one I hear in clients who have gone through some sort of adverse experiences in the past. And then maybe we're going to work on instead starting to believe I am enough, right? So that's kind of a a simple explanation, right? I'm not enough to I am enough. Somebody who has gone through childhood abuse, a common cognition they might hold is that I did something to make this happen. That's one that I hear sometimes from people. And obviously, we all know in our logical mind that we didn't do that, right? Especially as children, we are not capable of making something like that happen. The perpetrator is capable of making it happen. Uh, but we still believe it. Emotionally, we, we, we believe that that is true sometimes. So we would work on reducing how much we believe that negative cognition. And then eventually, instead, we're going to start to install a more positive cognition, such as I am not responsible for other people's actions. Okay, so we're going to desensitize the negative beliefs and increase the positive beliefs. Once that happens and we fully believe this new positive belief, we're going to treat any distress in the body because oftentimes trauma is held in the body. We can feel it in certain body areas. It's really common to hold trauma in our chest area or stomach area, uh, but people can hold it anywhere. So it really has to be a full body scan that is... um, is done to make sure that all the residual trauma in the body has been treated. And, and then that really wraps up the EMDR. Um, now, there might be multiple traumas or memories or themes that need to be treated. So for each of those memories or themes, then we would repeat this procedure again uh, with the new memory or the new theme. So it, it could be that you're using this protocol to treat many, many different things. Or for some people, maybe it's just, you know, one or two things that need to be treated. So everybody's going to be different. But really, that is EMDR in a nutshell. So I think this is a great spot for us to stop today. Thank you so much for listening and looking forward to having you back for next episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you found today's episode helpful, please go ahead and leave me a review. And you can also follow the show so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. For more information about me, you can check out my website, www.innersolutions.ca.